Hey, hey, welcome back everyone to another broadcast of In the Trenches. I'm your host, Tom Morcus, and today I sit down with Steve Glaveski, who is the author of Employee to Entrepreneur, How to Earn Your Freedom and Do Work That Matters. I brought Steve on the call today to talk about entrepreneurship, about getting started, about shipping things and doing work that matters. And that's what we talk about in today's conversation. My big takeaway is just this. There is no cure-all. There is no technique. There is no strategy or tactic or hack or trick that will make you successful. The only path to success is hard work and doing the work each day. So in today's conversation, that's what you're going to hear is stuff that maybe you've heard before, but my hope is that it will cement and further inculcate the critical aspects of entrepreneurship kind of within your mind and and even in your heart, maybe as as a way of thinking about it, which is this, that you have to do the work. You have to put things out there and you have to optimize for learning when you're just getting started. So everything you should do when you're just getting started should be about learning, should be about what can you do as quickly as possible, as efficiently as possible, as cost-effectively as possible to get feedback that helps you improve that loop, that learning loop so that you can go on to build a successful brand or business. So I'm going to leave it at that. Without further ado, here's today's conversation. Steve, my man. So I want to kick things off. Give people some context of how you got into doing what you're doing today with, you know, Collective Campus and how you guys are growing pretty substantially. So give us, before we get into that stuff and kind of get into the details, give us some background to you and, and how you got to what you're doing today. Yeah, Tom, I'd like to say it was a, a straight line, but few things in life really are, whether it's business or whether it's your love life or anything in between. I mean, I spent a good decade in the corporate world working for big brands like KPMG, uh, Ernst & Young, Macquarie Bank, and so on. And through a you know series of hops, skips, and jumps and uh, self-reflection, I discovered that even though I had what you would call, quote unquote, the trappings of success in that world, the six-figure salary and everything else, something deep down just wasn't aligned. And um, I found that the work wasn't really aligned with my natural strengths, my inclinations, and what I really valued in the world. So I started dabbling with startups. My first startup was a complete failure. I managed to raise some seed funding for it. And after two years of building that out, it was a company called Hotdesk, which essentially was kind of like an Airbnb, but for office space. Uh, so you could book meeting rooms and, off, and uh, office space by the day, by the week, by the month. Built the supply side up quite well. Demand side, not so much. But that was a bit of a sort of a detour on my way to what I'm doing right now. And I guess what I found was working on hot desk and having spent a decade in the corporate world, I found that a lot of the methodologies, mindsets, tools, techniques that entrepreneurs are using could be of use. In fact, they are of significant use to the corporate world, particularly in a world where things are changing faster and faster than ever. So that led me to found Collective Campus, which is uh, a corporate innovation and startup accelerator. And I say what we do is essentially help companies unlock their latent potential to create impact in the world and help their employees lead more fulfilling lives. Because I know so many people in that space who are talented, who have ability, who have ambition, but ultimately end up spending a lot of time in meetings, playing politics and things of that sort, and just end up living for the weekend. Um, So we're now helping companies Companies adopt a lot of these tools and techniques so that they can become more innovative, get better at uh, rapid experimentation, adopting new business models, technologies, and doubling down on what works and doing less of what doesn't. So that's essentially uh, the 2000 foot view story of how I came to what I'm doing today. I, I want to kind of go into that detour real quick uh, with Hotjar, just, just briefly, because you know a lot of people see this stuff from the outside, they see the wins, and, and we get some confirmation bias from it. And it, sometimes it kind of looks like easy even. But the reality is I think this stuff is really, 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 really hard. And there's a lot of things that have to be sacrificed. You have to, you have to put in the hours, the, the blood, sweat, and tears, so to speak. Sometimes it doesn't pan out. 
So with this, it sounded like a good idea. Like when you just when you even just described it to me, it sounded like, oh, that's that's actually really interesting. So what what happened? Why didn't it pan out as far as you're concerned? And uh, and what was what was your big takeaway from that? Yeah, so a couple of things. Um, what happened with any two sided marketplace? Uh, you need to build supply and demand, and not only that, but you need to align the messaging for the supply side and the demand side, and it all just needs to come together in a business model that makes sense for both parties. So it's really difficult. I like to when I work with um, early stage entrepreneurs, I tell them that actually, you know, if you want to build a marketplace, it's about five to ten times harder than building a single sided business. Now, one of the challenges with um, hot desk was the fact that if you were to book, say, a space using Airbnb. So for example, I was on my book tour last month. I was in uh, Laguna Beach. It was a beautiful space by the beach down there in Orange County. And I booked this place, but I was there for four days. And I'm hardly likely to call up the landlord and say, hey, I quite like this place. I think I'm going to, you know, can I sign a two-year lease? You know, nobody I know does that with Airbnb. But with something like a hot desk, if I book a space for, say, a day or a week, and I quite like it, I could then liaise directly with the operator of that space. So basically circumventing the platform. So that was happening quite a lot. And unless there was a significant investment in people following up, trying to basically do some debt collecting, um, it wasn't going to work long-term. But not only that, apart from some of the mechanics of the business, I also figured that after two years of working on that hot desk journey or on that journey, while I came to the conclusion that yes, I wanted to do more entrepreneurship, this was something that I enjoyed, the autonomy, the freedom, the fulfillment that came with it, the constant learning and challenge, what I didn't really believe in or align with was the underlying purpose. So I didn't really want to be a glorified real estate agent. And I think for anybody who's in entrepreneurship, who's whether they're in the game already or whether they're looking to jump out, like where you truly believe in what you're doing, you're far more likely to play that long game and um, overcome any of the inevitable setbacks and adversary that you're going to face. So whereas if you don't really believe in what you're doing, it's much easier to just say, yeah, I think I'm going to give up and move on to something else. So tell me, how did that uh, like set the stage for you in terms of like writing employee to entrepreneur and kind of coming out with that book? Like, is this something that like bled into that book at all and the ideas that you now share? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I mean, employee to entrepreneur came about a good five years after the hot desk journey ended. Um, and so that's uh, on the back of Collective Campus. So Collective Campus is now one of Australia's fastest growing new companies, uh, seven figure revenues. We've spun off a few companies as well. We've um, incubated close to 100 startups as part of our corporate accelerator programs. They've collectively raised about 25 million. So we're hitting a lot of, um, we're ticking a lot of boxes. We're, we're doing a lot better than what hot desk did. Now with employee to entrepreneur, that book really touches on a lot of the behaviors, pitfalls, and so on that people who have spent a long time in the corporate world will fall into. So they will inevitably become institutionalized in some way. They will overvalue things like research analysis and planning, process improvement, um, getting things right before leaving the building, all that sort of stuff. And you know, the, these behaviors, while they serve a purpose in an existing repeatable business model where you're already making money and there's a lot of certainty about who your customers are, your distribution channels and everything else, they don't make a lot of sense when you haven't got those answers to begin with. So if you're starting a fundamentally new business, you don't know who your customers are, what your product is, what they want, uh, the distribution channel, the marketing channel, and so on, then you're in a space of uncertainty and ambiguity. And so you need to move quickly to figure out what the answers are. Um, so sitting there in the building, uh, researching and looking at Forrest and Gartner research reports and putting together a 100-page business plan isn't going to help you. In fact, it's probably going to be uh, detrimental to your business. So 
the book is about exploring how to shed a lot of these self-limiting behaviors, beliefs, and so on, and what you should be doing instead. But aside from just that, the book does explore things like the mindset of an entrepreneur, um, how you need to show up each day. It does explore actionable takeaways when it comes to determining what you want to work on, uh, ensuring that it is aligned with something you actually believe in. Um, and then practical applications of things like the Lean Startup philosophy, design thinking, and sales and marketing techniques that will allow you to get way more bang for your buck in terms of how you spend your time um, rather than just get busy being busy, which is what so many entrepreneurs do. And um, nowadays, if you look at the top reasons why startups fail, and you know 95% of startups fail, the number one reason is market failure. Um, and it's usually jumping to conclusions, building something with all the bells and whistles, spending all your money on hiring a team and and, and flashy marketing campaigns, but then nobody is picking up what you're putting down. And uh, you know, a year or two into that journey, you end up going back into whatever you're doing before with your tail between your legs. And this book's about trying to help less people do that and more people increase their, their chances of success. Let's let's zoom in there. And uh, in, in terms of like the things most entrepreneurs maybe do wrong or most startups do wrong. And it sounded like at least one, one of those elements was this idea of kind of building, then trying to sell and realizing there's not much of a market or, or whatever they did didn't uh, mm. cultivate what they needed to in order to survive. And, and so it ends up becoming kind of a revenue problem. But talk me through that, like as you see it, and maybe how this applies to the company you're now building. Yeah. So in terms of validating our assumptions to make sure that we're building something that actually works, is that the question? Exactly. Let's dive into that. Yeah, sure. So Whatever your idea is, whatever the business model is, and, and we should always stress that ideas are a dime a dozen and it's about the execution and, and you know, ideas are a commodity, essentially, as Michael Dell puts it. You're going to have a number of assumptions that underpin your, your idea. So you know, the customer, the problem, the solution, the, the marketing channel, the, the revenue model, the, the cost structure, and so on. But you're going to have some sense of confidence about some of these elements. But then there's going to be other things where you have very low confidence. And not only that, these things are high impact. So to give you an example of that, if I was to say, jump in a time machine and go back to the year 2008, and I was looking at building something like Uber. Now, in that case, my biggest assumption that's make or break would be whether or not people trust the platform, whether or not people have enough faith in the platform to get into a car with a stranger. Um, if that doesn't hold true, then everything else falls down. So one, it's high impact. And two, at this point, we've got very high uncertainty about this. So that's the kind of thing you want to test uh, nice and early. But rather than jumping to conclusions like so many entrepreneurs do, say hiring a development agency of some kind to build a full-blown app, then onboarding a number of drivers, then spending money on a marketing campaign, what you should do instead is bring back that feedback loop, that learning loop. And one way you might do that in this particular instance is go out to say a busy taxi rank on say a Saturday evening and just start talking to people and offering them those rides for $20, providing you can show them some sort of uh, documentation that says you're not a serial killer or something to that effect. And what percentage of people actually say yes? Now, it's not going to be everyone, but if you get one in 10 or even one in 20 um, people saying, yes, definitely, I, I just want to get home, here's $20, that starts to give you a sense of confidence around that assumption actually being true. But if you speak to 100 people and they all say no, then you need to revisit that assumption. Um, so that's the kind of thing where you can do that learning much earlier in the piece for literally little to no money um, rather than over-investing. Um, I just read a story the other day about um, an app development agency that shuttered stores in Australia called Appster. And they were one of the biggest shops here. And the reason they did so is because they had 
poor financial management. A lot of the work that they were doing would be offshored to you know developing parts of the world. They'd charge a much higher amount for it, and therefore their margins were absolutely massive. And now in this particular article, there was a lot of sub stories from entrepreneurs who had invested up to $500,000 to build the first version of a product without having done any prior testing. They've never done anything. And I think in these cases, yes, that company, that agency was at fault because they should be exercising some due diligence and some uh, fiduciary responsibilities and, and advising their client to say, hey, maybe you want to build a $20,000 version of this first. But also the entrepreneurs out there need to stop jumping to conclusions like that and over-investing when they haven't done anywhere near the amount of testing to assure themselves that what they're building is something the market actually wants. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I agree completely on, on some of those points. When you zoom into like the idea of validation too, I guess something I've been thinking about recently, more recently is uh, in this context is, so I've done a lot of... Uh, a lot of launches and a lot of pre-sales for things. The thing I've discovered is like, number one, yeah, it's great to get cash in hand before you build something. Like I don't see any reason why you shouldn't be able to do that in most markets. I know there's always going to be an exception, but like it works really, really well. So I'm a big proponent of that. But the other thing I've been thinking about is like the business side of things. It's like, I actually, to, to me, the validation piece is actually really easy because I've just been doing it for so long. Whereas I know that's like where a lot of people struggle. For me, the, the thing that I find maybe more complex or more challenging is how you go from validation, like money in pocket, to then saying, okay, well, let's build these systems out so it's actually not just another job that I created, but it's a business that can scale. It has the margins baked in. So how do you approach that? Maybe, maybe you can talk through, I don't know, some of the companies you guys have worked with or even your own on how you kind of approach that problem set, like knowing, okay, yeah, does this make sense from a pricing perspective? Like, will this, will we be able to survive and thrive and grow? based on our pricing, our expenses, et cetera, especially when you get into the expense piece and the overhead piece for these things. Like you might be able to sell, sell something, but then you might not be able to deliver it. It sounds like those, well, the example you gave was somebody who's overcharging and then not delivering. But I think a lot of entrepreneurs run into the trouble of undercharging and then, and then not delivering, which of course is also crippling because it, it, well, they couldn't deliver because they undercharged. So where, how do you find that balance? Like how do you approach this problem? Yeah. And look, there is no one answer because every product is different. Every market is different. So whether or not the market is you know, firstly large enough or it's a new market, it's a developing market, is it something you can scale? One thing I will say is that once you have done that validation, so you've done exploring, then you can start exploiting. And exploiting does lead itself or lead into something you touched on there, which was systems. Um, and the better your systems are around, say, sales um, and marketing, the faster you're actually able to determine whether or not this is a scalable opportunity. So for example, if I have honed my, my value proposition, my marketing message, my sales message, I know exactly who my customer segment is, I know where to find them, then I can put systems in place to basically 10x or 100x the amount of, say, outreach I might do uh, to a particular segment. So for example, if I am targeting um, commercial real estate agents or, or something to that effect, and I've got my message down pat, everything else I just ran through, then I may be able to, well, I can definitely use tools like, say, a linked helper or something or, or lead IQ to reach out to maybe 500 uh, agents in that space from, say, Australia alone, targeting them with that message and, and being really succinct and personalized with that and seeing what percentage of them come back. Now, you might find that after a few rounds of this, you start getting less and less responses to that question. So, I mean, it's, it's really hard to stand in one position and pontificate about whether or not this is going to be scalable two, three years out. But if you continue to adopt that process of let's continue to learn. Let's keep that feedback loop short. You might find that after three to six months, you may have won a number of 
pieces of work with, say, commercial real estate agents. But then after a while, the number of people in that market, you're, you're looking up your search terms and there's not many left. You've contacted everyone of the 500, maybe 10 did business with you. And then you might want to look at, well, can we scale this uh, to other markets, like other jurisdictions, whether it's going overseas, or can we start to apply this to uh, different industries or roles within the the commercial real estate uh, market? Um, So, and that's the thing. It really depends on the type of product because you might have a product that's really, really specific that's purely for, say, paralegals, for example, just to bust out a random role. Or it could be something that can be used um, across, say, the legal industry, the, the financial services industry, the FMCG industry. So in our case, um, what we're selling uh, for corporate innovation services, essentially, we can sell that to lots of different industries. But what we did initially was target all the industries, all the roles, and then identify where the bytes are and then double down on those. And then once we see that those bytes start tapering off, then we start transitioning to other roles. And, and you know, it's about being specific as well. I mean, I, we create content for specific roles. So for example, if I'm selling something to the insurance industry, then I'll create a role around, we, we created an ebook called Innovation in Insurance. And then we use that to target, uh, say, heads of innovation in the insurance space. So it's got to be really specific. Otherwise, if you go out there with a general offer, um, try and be everything to everyone, you end up being nothing to everyone. So yeah. That actually seems, I feel like that's the trend happening right now. That, at least that I'm seeing that some companies get and are acting out right now, which is this idea of personalization, especially like personalization at scale. Like we actually have all the data on every person visiting our website. Like pretty much everybody does. So like if you wanted to tailor the content, you could. And, but most people, it's just, it's complex. I think it's like, it's a complex problem set to, to think about at least initially. Plus I think when people have things working, they just, they just roll with it. But I think that's what we're going to see is in the next five to 10 years is this big focus on personalization. The companies that can personalize will win. Like it's wild to me how effective that is. And that actually seems like why startups can be so successful or at least can be successful in spite of the fact that there's, you know, entrenched incumbents that are, you know, uh, that, that, or that are entrenched like uh, competitors that already have, you know, X amount of market share. Well, it's because the startup can focus on that really narrow market, a really specific person, kind of one-to-one. What are your thoughts on that? Like you, you've worked with a lot of startups. I'm curious, like what, I know there's probably a large variance depending on like the company and what they're trying to do, but how do you, how do you like work with them or, or I suppose work or plan how they ought to like approach that first customer segment? Like, do you, do you go through any kind of process to figure out, Hey, we need to refine the market or if this is too big, too general or this is too small, too narrow? Like, how do you approach that? Yeah, uh, good question. So, I mean, we usually look at market uh, intelligence or customer intelligence gathering tools. Um, So things like BuzzSumo, for example, um, even um, on LinkedIn, you can see trends around what topics are being shared more than others, what's being spoken about more than other things. But one thing we really do is in the initial stages, we, we, you can spend a lot of time trying to figure out exactly who they should target to begin with by looking at these intelligence factors. But one thing we do is try and leverage media and new hires, for example. So explore, then exploit. So for example, what I would do is if I was selling, um, say, I don't know, let's say digital transformation or something to that effect, digital transformation services, what I would do, I would set up a keyword tracker in uh, BuzzSumo. So anytime an executive gets mentioned for digital transformation, um, we would then have an automated backend process that contacts them via, say, LinkedIn and says something along the lines of, hey, Tom, I noticed, I, I saw the article featuring uh, your good self in the Wall Street Journal talking about digital transformation. Just so happens that that's what we do um, at Collective Campus. Um, we've worked with XYZ firms. I'd love to talk to you about it. 
please schedule a, a f- short 15 minute conversation here. Like something like that, because then it's not me guessing where the market is based on some research that I've done, which, which is all well and good. And you definitely need to do some of that. But by taking that approach, I'm actually responding to market signals. So I know that this company has appetite. Um, they're spending money in this space. They've been in the media talking about it. So now they need to back it up. And I am contacting them with a personalized message about the media article in a very, very timely fashion. So when you combine all of those factors, you're far more likely to succeed than what you would be if you're just kind of put all your eggs in one basket to begin with and say, okay, we're going to target this particular industry because of all these research that we've done. I think that to me makes a hell of a lot more sense. And that way you might find you get bites from a number of different industries, but once you start working with them, you then get a better appreciation as well for what their problems are, their internal workings, which may be pervasive across the industry. And then you can take that and reincorporate that back into your message and your sales pitch and everything else going forward um, to increase your your likelihood of conversion and basically do a lot more work going forward. I love it. So well, zooming in on the book too, because I, I mentioned that earlier, but you know, you've, you've rolled this out. Like, What was your approach to this, kind of getting this book out there what was your experience uh, like with the launch? Like what's worked, what hasn't? Like it can be big, big, big picture too. Like just general things. And uh, cause this is your first book, I think. Is that correct? Or at least traditional book? Yeah. I mean, I did self-publish a couple of books, but we won't call them real books. Uh, this is my first real book because <laughs> it's uh, been published by Wiley. And uh, look, at a couple of things. So firstly, I mean, I like yourself, I host the podcast. And you know, a lot of the times people jump into podcasting thinking it's all about direct monetization. Let's get as many listens as possible so we can get some sponsors. And you know, the reality is less than 1%, I think, of podcasts make enough money to make a living. Uh, podcasters make enough money to make a living off it. Um, but there are a lot of indirect benefits. So um, in my case, we've had a lot of people listen to the show who went on to become uh, five and even a couple of six-figure clients, for example. But in the case of the book, one, Tim Harford, uh, who wrote The Undercover Economist, he's been a guest on my show three times and we, we developed a pretty good relationship. And when I told him that I wanted to write a, a book and get published, he basically sent me a template that he had used to get a nonfiction book deal, um, which was really, really helpful. And um, that was step one. But then step two, um, in that book proposal, I needed to include things like endorsements. And so given that I had interviewed people like, say, Adam Grant and Whitney Johnson and all these New York Times bestselling authors, I went back to them and said, hey, hey, Adam, um, I'm writing, I'm putting together this book proposal. Would you be comfortable giving me an endorsement once it goes live? And, and he came back and said, yeah, sure. Um, so I put that into the book proposal. So that just made it a lot stronger than what it would have been if I had just started emailing agents without a book proposal, without all these heavy hitter endorsements and said, hey, I'm Steve. I run this company in Australia. I'm keen to write a book about XYZ. So firstly, that got publishers to take me a lot more seriously. But having said that, and let's not fall into the narrative fallacy because everyone who's had some element of success can look back on their journey and say, yeah, it's because I did X, Y, and Z. Now that we should never downplay the role that luck plays any form of success. Um, yes, you have to do the work, but there is also an element of luck. So in this case, I went into it knowing that I would get rejected probably 50 times before I heard something that resembled a yes. And in fact, I got rejected 39 times by agents, by publishers, um, and so on before um, Wiley basically got back to me and said, hey, we like the look of this proposal. Are you up for coffee? And that's just, just because sometimes there isn't alignment, there isn't timing, there isn't appetite, maybe it conflicts with something they're already doing. So just bear that in mind that whatever you're doing, that there's going to be inevitable things, setbacks and whatnot that will work against you. You should just be comfortable hearing no as many times as possible before you get to that one yes. And then once the, you know, let's just fast track past the actual book writing and production process, but the actual promotion side of things. Uh, one thing I've done, and you know, I'm a big believer in automation and outsourcing. So uh, we 
basically did things like scrape, say, the top 200 podcasts across relevant topics, whether it was business, um, health, uh, management, marketing, uh, you name it. And using tools like hunter.io, um, I had a VA who was able to contact or to extract all of the email addresses of different podcasts and podcast hosts across the charts. And then we send out personalized messages to about 800 podcasters. Now, of course, not all... 800 will get back to you, but maybe 5%, so 40 will. And these are podcasts that are on the charts, so anywhere between 1,000 to you know, 100,000 listens per episode, if not more in some, of the, some cases. Now, if you get onto 40 of those, then suddenly you're in front of maybe a million or 2 million people um, versus the good old-fashioned physical book tour where you might get in front of 20 to 50 people at a bookstore somewhere, maybe five of which will end up buying the book. Um, and this is all the stuff you can do from the comfort of your own home like I'm doing right now. So that I think has worked really well. And again, unintended byproduct and organic benefit of that has been just the relationships I've made with a lot of podcasters, a couple of whom I'm now working with on a couple of projects. So it is, I mean, I've always been a numbers guy, as you can kind of tell, you know, play the numbers and you will get that success rather than trying to guess where the value is up front. Um, so that's worked quite well. Um, but then there are things that don't work really well with books. Like um, I, for, for me, things like Facebook ads, Amazon ads, uh, not really effective. Um, I think podcasting is a captive audience. You're in someone's ear. It's very intimate. And if they like the message, if they like what you're talking about, they're far more likely to then pull out their phone, you know, capture what the name of your book is. And then next time they're on Audible or um, over at Barnes & Noble or whatever the case may be, they're like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll pick up that employed entrepreneur book. At least I hope that's what they're thinking. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's been my experience. I've done a lot of book launches and that's exactly like the first, one of the first areas where we start just because it's the it's usually the easiest and fastest to line up. And if you get in front of the right audiences, they are, you know, podcast listeners are readers too. And that's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, social media, that's not necessarily the case. And so I think a lot of people think, oh, it's like any of these platforms can be used for anything, but that's not the case. Like books just don't, uh, don't sell through things like Facebook ads and, and, and that kind of, and, and paid acquisition channels. Like unless there's like, you're going like, unless you're doing like some kind of really, you know, nifty strategy on it, like it just doesn't work bottom line, but things like podcasts are incredible. Yeah. Like, you know, you usually get paid, you don't typically you don't have to pay to get onto a podcast and it could be, you know, so then the ROI is like, could be fantastic. Uh, it's tough on the tracking piece, but again, that's the nature though of books. Like I'm sure you've experienced this being traditionally published now versus self-published. You also don't get good data on the books. So like, it's kind of a crapshoot, I guess. You just kind of put it out there. <laughs> Any other, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that and like kind of where this goes for you? Yeah. So yeah, one thing I will say on the data piece it, that that is tough, even whether, whether it's podcasting or whether it's your book. I mean, if you've gone through a publishing house, in my case, I didn't see any data until three months in, which yeah. is crazy because, you know, anyone who, you know, is worth a grain of salt in the entrepreneurial domain knows that it's all about that fast feedback loop. And I want to see data on a real-time basis. So I know whether or not I need to tweak something, pivot, iterate. But when I'm getting that data on a three-monthly basis, I don't know if what I'm doing is correct. I mean, I can only pontificate based on a number of market signals like Amazon rankings and how many people are sharing it on social media and you know, going down to the local bookstore and seeing that yesterday there was 10 copies of my book and today there's six. So if people are buying it, that's all good. Then you kind of try and figure it out from there. But um, that's, the, that's the bad thing about it. So you don't know if what you're doing is really, really, really um, working. Um, so you kind of have to just believe, believe in it. But I, I'm not sure if that really answered your question, but the exact question was... No, that's, that's good. Like I was just kind of riffing on this because I was kind of curious yeah. your take on it. But I think that does, that kind of hits the nail on the head. 
Yeah. Well, one thing I will say, just a, a funny byproduct of that is uh, appearing on all these podcasts, it can be kind of cathartic because you get asked a lot of questions about failure and um, your journey that you may not have reflected on. And so after a while, it actually um, sharpens your worldview and, and your, uh, your thinking as well. So I, I think I'd just throw that one in there for the audience. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I agree completely. So, okay. So, so with where you're at now, with employed entrepreneur, it seems, it seems a little bit different than the other you know, other companies you have and the other things you're doing, how does this actually fit? Like, I guess from a personal brand or a business brand, like where does this fit and, and why, why this book? Yeah, no, that's, that's true because I mean, most of our revenue comes from, you know, working with large companies, the startups we work with, they don't pay us. They're, uh, they basically uh, beneficiaries of large companies paying us to run a corporate startup accelerator program. So you're absolutely right there. Um, but having worked with a lot of startups, I see so many of them making the same mistakes when they first start up. I see so many people who are still in the corporate world and you know they speak with me, um, whether they're clients or not. And they'll ask me, you know, how did you do it? I've got all these ideas. I don't know where to start. Um, so that's kind of what inspired the book. But in terms of where it goes from here, you know, I don't have, say, a direct product to funnel people into for people who read this book. So it's not like I've got some online course or anything to that effect. So it was more of a a personal branding piece for me because now that I have this published book, it's with Wiley, it's been endorsed by Adam Grant, um, all these things, it's actually created new opportunities for me. Um, One being I recently got published in the Harvard Business Review uh, and and the article was called The Case for the Six-Hour Workday. Now, positioning myself when I made that pitch to HBR as a Wiley author definitely helped my case because I had pitched them previously on several occasions and got absolutely nowhere. But on this case, I got published. Now that article actually got picked up by media outlets all over the world. The Wall Street Journal, the New Zealand Herald, um, news.com.au here in Australia, Tech in Asia in Singapore, um, and 60 Minutes want to run a story about it in a couple of weeks time here in Australia. So it is, like, like I was saying with podcasting earlier, don't just look at the direct benefit. How many books am I going to sell? Or how many online courses am I going to sell as, as a result of this book? But what are those organic, indirect opportunities that will come out of having this book out there. So I've already seen a number of those pop up in the five weeks since the book has come out. Um, And that's been really exciting for me. But one thing I will say, I think, you know, people talk a lot about purpose and find your purpose. And I think that purpose is something that's malleable. Like you shouldn't just say, okay, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. So up until now, I've been working with a lot of large companies, but where I can see myself adding more value is transitioning and applying what I'm doing, but more so with a lot more early stage entrepreneurs, whether it's not necessarily startups coming through my accelerator programs, but at scale, um, entrepreneurs all around the world through books, through podcasts. And that's what I've been doing a lot of. Um, my podcast is about 320 episodes in. Um, I've got the book out now. So it is about how can I create a lot more impact? Because the fundamental difference between a large company trying to innovate and an entrepreneur trying to innovate is that one of them has absolutely no well, I wouldn't say no barriers in their way. Capital may be a barrier, but the entrepreneur can just move and get things done. And if they want to test something or build something, they can get started today. Whereas in the corporate domain, they may have the best of intentions, but unless there's senior management buy-in, unless the culture, the policies, the processes, the systems all support it, there's going to be a lot of talk and only maybe in one out of 20 cases, any action. Um, So when I reflect on my own sort of purpose and the work that I'm doing, where can I create more impact? You know, it could be working with a lot of corporates, but a lot of the time that could end up, you know, coming to naught just because of the nature of these organizations, which is why we set up the accelerator program. So at least startups can create value for these companies. But if I can do so with more entrepreneurs, then I feel like I can create a lot more impact. And if I can create more impact, then that feeds into my motivation because I can see the value of my work. And I think that's a big piece as well. You know, I talked about 
purpose alignment earlier to keep you playing the long game, but it's not just purpose alignment. It's also the feedback loop. Um, because if you see a positive feedback loop, you don't have to wait a year to see that positive feedback. You might see that in a week or two. It could be something as simple as people emailing you saying, hey, I really loved your latest podcast episode. Um, it really inspired me to take action. Then that's going to keep you motivated. And that's a big part of uh, any venture, any aspiration, any pursuit you're on, whether you're trying to build a business or learning to surf or ride a motorcycle, you've got to get some sort of positive feedback. Otherwise, you might give up sooner rather than later. 100% agree. I would also say just about midway through that that commentary there, you did hit on something that was kind of interesting. But it's just that this idea of like startups, the difference between startups and, and established corporations, you know, startups are working within constraints, serious constraints. And I think mm. that's where creativity lies. And I think that's where, where value lies is within the constraints because you try to extract out value where, you know, and, and, and you're limited on the resources, you're limited in the scope. And so you have to get creative. And I think creativity oh, yeah. is something you can engineer. And I think, you know, startups, that's exactly what you're trying to do. You're trying to, you are effectively engineering creativity um, through just through the nature of it, like through the nature of starting something from scratch. I think it's just a fascinating space. And I guess that's why I've just always been attracted to people who are hustling and starting things up and creating things without being told to do so. Like it's just, it's a fun space to be in, isn't it? Oh man, it's, it's so fun. And, you know, I've been, um, like I said, I've got a bit of media play recently around this six hour workday concept. And people ask me, how did this come about? Um, was this something you practiced in the corporate world? And I'm like, hell no, because in the corporate world, I didn't have these constraints. Um, in the corporate world, I had the steady paycheck coming in. I sat in a lot of meetings. Doesn't matter what I did, I'd get paid. And, you know, I'd really need to screw up big time to get fired. Whereas in the entrepreneurial domain, I only have so many resources. I only have so much capital. You really need to be very, very deliberate about how you spend your time, where you invest your money. So things like um, effective prioritization of what I'm going to work on today, things like outsourcing any process-oriented task, things like automating anything that can be automated so that I can free myself up to work on just the high-value tasks. These are questions you start asking when you have constraints. They're not necessarily questions you start asking when you don't have constraints and when you can do whatever you want and you still get paid. And so... That's why growth hacking came about as well. You know, growth hacking didn't come about in, say, the corporate world. It came about in the entrepreneurial domain because it's like, well, we haven't got much money to spend on marketing. So what can we do that maybe may cost us little to nothing, but get us 10x the return that a traditional marketing campaign would? I love it. Well, Steve, this has been a really fascinating interview. I'm really excited to check out your book and pay attention to what you're doing kind of going forward. So I'll definitely be in touch. Where can people reach out to find you, connect with you for those who are interested in learning more about what you're doing? Sure. Thanks, Tom. Um, people can find me at steveglaveski.com. That's G-L-A-V-E-S-K-I. That's got links to all my social media profiles, my podcast, Future Squared. And if they want to find out more about the book, they can do so at employee2entrepreneur.io. Um, they can download a free bonus bundle there with all sorts of um, tips, techniques, tools, tricks on sales, marketing, growth hacking, productivity, and so on. Um, absolutely free. So employee2entrepreneur.io. Awesome. Well, Steve, thank you so much for being on In the Trenches, man. It was a real pleasure. Thanks, Tom. It's been an absolute pleasure. Are you trying to grow your online business, but struggling to get new customers consistently and predictably? Are you tired of working nonstop only to see your income plateau? Are you ready to step off the hustle hamster wheel, as I call it, and step onto a path of predictable profit that you can scale as much or as little as you want? Don't worry, you're not alone. I've been there. When I first got started, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. So I started reading blogs and listening to podcasts by people I respected and wanted to learn from. I slowly but surely put their recommendations into practice. But because I wanted to do it all myself, maybe you, you're something like that, right? And you love to do 
do it by yourself, learn through trial and error. Well, bottom line is it took forever. Results were unpredictable when I was first getting started. I wasn't sure where to spend my time, money, and energy. And shiny penny syndrome got the best of me on more than one occasion. For many entrepreneurs, the amount I sacrificed working literally nonstop in some cases in my spare time and 12 and 14 hour days routinely after going full time, combined with the endless fog of war, aka that uncertainty that I had to deal with at all times because I was going it alone, I think that would have been enough for most entrepreneurs to throw in the towel. But I was persistent, focused, and I stayed humble. Day after day, I worked to grow the traffic to my website, increase my list of subscribers, and generate a healthy living for my ebooks, e courses, and other digital products. At least that was the goal. But maybe more important than the work was that I paid attention to what I was doing, including what worked and what didn't. Eventually, I discovered a predictable pattern of growth. And so what I did was I just doubled down on those things and I scrapped or sidelined the other things that weren't working so well. Finally, two years after resigning my commission as a captain in the army and going full-time on my online business front with my blog, with my podcast, et cetera, I replaced my income with digital product income. Two years. And so if that's where it stopped, I would have been happy with it. I would have been happy with the results. I wouldn't have complained. I would have been very content just replacing my income. But the bottom line is it was so much work. I wanted to you know, see if it could go somewhere else, right? So I just kept doing what I was doing, but better, faster, and more effectively. Again, just kind of applying the same system that I discovered uh, from seeing these patterns emerge, right? So I implemented it. I kept doing it. And eventually, replacing my income turned into doubling my income. And then that turned into a little bit more and a little bit more. But not just that. It afforded me the freedom to dictate my day and also choose the projects I want to work on, on the schedule and on the timeline I want, and to work with the people I want to work with. And to me, that's like a whole new level of freedom, especially coming from the military. It's something I've never really had that level of complete autonomy until I became my own boss. I started my own business. And until ultimately, until it became profitable enough for me to start to take a step back and actually reap the rewards of it, because it's not all just working, working, working. And I do believe it's hard work. And I'll always say that nothing about doing this stuff is easy. But at the same time, you've got to reap the rewards at some point and take some of that profit, uh, even if you're just reinvesting it into new assets and things like that. Bottom line is, it can't just be work, right? Entrepreneurship and business is about that result that occurs, the value you've created and the profit, that, that piece of value that you've captured, okay? And you want to be able to reap the rewards of that profit, of that value, that little sliver of value that you get to capture, that you get to net, right? You want to be able to take advantage of that. Otherwise, you know, the entrepreneurship game really does become just a grind. And, and for, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, unfortunately, it becomes meaningless and that's when they quit. Well, for me, I love this stuff. I really truly do. I mean, it is my thing. And so that's why I didn't just stop where I was at. I've stayed committed to learning everything I can about all aspects of this online business world and this online marketing world. And I do this through real world application. In other words, I'm currently growing several online businesses and I'm always putting my ideas to the test in real time with my own money, with my own time and energy, oftentimes with employees, you know, a lot of some, some stuff more advanced, some stuff more simple, but, you know, so varying levels of complexity and again, in different spaces, different niches. And I can say, you know, bottom line, I've always loved the startup hustle, but I got to say, it's nice to now be in a position where I can get big results with much less effort. Thanks to having built the foundation of my business the right way. And again, I did it all through trial and error, but I don't think that that's the way that everyone needs to do it. And in fact, looking back on it, if I had to redo it, I don't know if I would. 
it was so difficult to just go it alone and try to figure everything out by myself. So one of the things I've tried to do is give back with this podcast, with my blog, and with my newsletter. But maybe even more rewarding than any of this stuff, while I've enjoyed all of it, I think the thing that I'm enjoying the most, that I find most engaging and rewarding, is the premium business mastermind and coaching program I run called 100K Academy. Inside 100K Academy, I help ambitious entrepreneurs who are very driven and excited to be doing what they're doing. I help them grow their reach, their influence, and their profit using my proprietary marketing system. That's the same one I use to scale my own online businesses from zero to multiple six figures and beyond, and the same system I use to help my clients reach the New York Times, Wall Street Journal bestseller list, set Kickstarter funding records, and create viral product launches that have turned into predictable revenue streams. So lots and lots of case studies that you can find at tommorcus.com. If you're curious, just go to tommorcus.com slash about, and that'll get you started. Most importantly, this system is one that 100K Academy members and alumni have used to achieve tremendous results, like Alexa, who used it to have her most profitable year ever, or Tina, who used it to make five figures from a sales funnel that she can now replicate and scale, and that's exactly what she's doing, or Carrie, who made over $75,000 in just seven days. And the crazy part about his story was that his online business was actually a side hustle up until that first profitable launch, which he has then been able to grow and scale. And he subsequently quit his job following that very successful week. And I think that that has been just a game changer for Carrie and the life he's living and the work he gets to do and the impact he gets to make on the world because of the great work he's doing now, because he was able to figure out a system that would get him the targeted traffic, the subscribers, the sales to grow a profitable online business. Bottom line, if you want to grow your online business from six to seven figures, but you flatlined or you're struggling, or you just want to be told what to do and when to do it and in what order, right? And you want a system that is predictable and scalable and isn't just you know another shiny penny, but actually will fit right into your business. It plugs in and is something that you can truly grow. I want you to go to tommorcus.com slash academy. That's tommorcus.com slash academy. Academy is spelled A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Go to tommorcus.com slash academy, and you'll find a page on my website with more details about 100K Academy, the business mastermind coaching program I run, as well as instructions on what to do next. Again, that's tommorcus.com slash academy. And if you're serious about growing your reach, influence, or profit, just follow the instructions and we'll be in touch, okay? Again, tommorcus.com slash academy. Go ahead and head over there now. That's it for today. Stay frosty.